Problem Fox Pop, leveling 16,000. 337 for Problem Fox Pop. Okay, 3,000 left turn, 1-3-3-7, this week's episode of Skies and Beyond Radio, we look at transatlantic routes and narrow bodies, the right camera for you, a story from my fast spotting trip, and of course, your questions and the answers to them. But first, we need to talk about Southwest and what they've just recently done. Southwest, as you know, has just recently, or they had a preview of their new Desert Gold, the Herb Keller Desert Gold livery on the MAX aircraft. Now, I saw this on Twitter, I retweeted it, I got a couple comments on it, and you know, everyone really kind of has their own opinion about these things. But for me, it kind of just bothers me for some reason. I don't know why. I remember the Desert Gold livery being on the 700 series and seeing it flying to Manchester. I saw it in Baltimore a couple times. And I really miss that old school kind of livery. But throwing it on a Max, it's kind of like mixing old with new. I really wish they would have just retired the livery and just let it go as that. Or maybe you had a, you know, a museum display with it on... Uh, something like that, but I, I, I saw it and I just it just blew my mind. I was like, Southwest, here we go again, releasing liveries that are from the old school generation and putting it on something new. Now, recently, I also went to, I was in Boston last Friday doing some plane spotting, and I happened to see, and I was lucky to see the Tennessee 1 livery, which was re, uh, reinstated on the 800 series. And once again, I was disappointed. I looked at it and I go, man, it looks just... It looks overstretched. It looks like they just, they didn't recrop correctly. They didn't. It just I. It doesn't fit. You know, it's kind of like Spirit Airlines. I love Spirit Airlines. Their yellow livery, the banana livery, as people call it, it pops. It really looks good on the A320. It looks amazing on the 19, but on the A321, it's like it's missing something. They didn't stretch the lettering out enough, and it's there's something missing. So same thing with Tennessee One. I feel like there's just it's just it needs something else. I don't know what it is, or maybe they can just stretch it out. No, I think Illinois uh, the livery came back, and that's on the 800 series as well, and that looks really good. They did a really great job stretching the livery across the entire fuselage, and I think it doesn't look as as bad. I think it looks just the same. But going back to the whole desert gold livery, I'm, it's not that I. <laughs> really absolutely hate it. I think it's interesting, but it just, there's something off about it. It just, it doesn't seem quite right. Um, you know, this is one of those things, Southwest is announcing this livery thing, uh, new Desert Gold coming back on the max, everyone's excited. Meanwhile, the flight attendants are, you know, going on strike, and because, you know, they don't have their contracts are expired, and so on and so forth, and that goes back to the whole ideals of Southwest and however they happen to do their process. And we look at it and I kind of kind of chuckled to myself because I feel like Southwest has kind of pulled away from the ideologies of what they were founded on. 
And this whole, I remember when I was in business school, I remember reading about the Southwest Airlines mentality of treating their employees the best they can, give them whatever they want, the best benefits, the best everything you can get, and in return, they'll be happy. So the output is you're giving them all this stuff, and you're hoping in return that they are they do the same for the customer base as well. And there's a lot of things that I feel I don't always fly Southwest. I only do it if I have to. I did it when I went to Chicago, and I absolutely hated it. I couldn't wait to get off the airplane. The staff was rude. Um, it's just one of those because someone quoted in a group chat, and I wanted a quote. I won't say who it was, but they referred to the boarding process of Southwest Airlines as a barbaric boarding process. It's just like this you know, gauntlet that you have to rush through just so you can get a window seat. And sometimes you get, like when I was going to Chicago, I was in the last group and I sat in an aisle seat and there was no one next to me in the middle seat, but there was a gentleman in the window seat. And the entire time, the man had the window shade closed. Why sit in a window seat if you're just going to close the shade? That just bothers me. It's kind of like people standing up, you know, when you get to the gate and you're wondering where they're going to go. Are you guys are going to just jump out the window because the jetway is not even connected yet. But anyways, um, Southwest Airlines, I mean, I love you guys, but do better. You can focus on your staff and keep everyone flying and keep your customers flying. And the liveries, uh, well, you know, I guess you can work on them in the future. You know, some of them will look good on the Max, and I think like there's a couple special liveries that'll look really great on the Max, just not the Desert Gold. It's gonna come in, and people are gonna go crazy over it, and then you know, in the long run, it's just gonna be like, oh well, just another special livery on the Max. So now that that rant is officially over, let's just switch over to the rest of the podcast, and we'll start with the transatlantic flights with the narrowbody jets versus, say, the A330, the 767, or anything else that's higher in class. So back in on September 20th, I believe, um, JetBlue took off from Boston for London Heathrow, and they landed slightly ahead of schedule, about five minutes, so 6.25 local time. And I think I looked up on Flight Radar, but Flight Radar said it was just about six hours and two minutes, and that's about 10 minutes longer, not shorter, just longer, than the carriers that use the wide bodies. And one of the reasons for that is the narrow bodies, including the A321LR, which JetBlue uses, cruise slightly slower. So for the first flight, JetBlue deployed uh, was November 4062 Juliet. It was only a two-month-old, I think at the time, um, A321LR, and it was delivered in July. Um, so we look at this and we go, what's the benefit or the disadvantage or the advantage of flying, say, a narrow body versus a wide body? Um, is it the comfortability or are you looking at price point? We all know that Play Airlines, for example, is a narrow body and it goes to Europe out of Boston. Um, the flight is a lot cheaper in price and you have to uh, make a stop in Reykjavik in Iceland. So for the most part, these transatlantic flights and narrow bodies, this is, a, this is not the first time. JetBlue, I just mentioned JetBlue because Jet, they just started their Boston to London Heathrow route. And currently, right now, it's doing well. The percentage of it is mostly full. But over time, I think um, 
the idea of it is going to it's kind of like when like a new pizza shop or a new sub shop or any kind of chain restaurant opens up in your neighborhood it's really big and the hype is good for a while and then it will slowly dwindle down until you know it just gets to the point of teetering off but these these flights there this isn't the first time that narrow bodies have flown transatlantic routes i mean we can go back to previous attempts at transatlantic flights for example norwegian i remember they flew to providence um back a few years ago they had long-haul flights or transatlantic flights from providence uh, where did that go i mean and why did it fall off all of a sudden but to be fair, the expansion of long-haul flights for Norwegian was just what it was. It was an expansion. This was an airline that was rooted in Europe, and they based all of their you know, foundations off of the European routes. With that being said, I'm, we saw the fall off completely. Now, it could have been, you know, COVID kind of in, escalated it a little bit later down the road where the Transatlantic flights didn't come back. Now, those ones were performed in a MAX, if I was correct. And then, of course, with the Boeing issues with MAX, it was slightly different. You know, we had to, they, or excuse me, they had to refocus their efforts. And I think their um, CEO, Jacob uh, Schramm at the time, um, he quoted, and says, our, our short haul network has always been the backbone of Norwegian and will form the basis of a future resilient business model. So they're going back to the idea of just focusing on their domestic routing, their European routing, and just basing the airline off of that. So that was one example of these transatlantic flights and probably my favorite example of all time, and this was just has a great story behind it, is Ukrainian Airlines. Now, of course, due to the war, there's no flights coming in or out of the Ukraine. But I think it's more interesting to point out that uh, there was a flight from, uh, what was it? Uh, it was Kiev to JFK. Now, that flight originally used to be flown with a triple or 767, I do believe. And then I think they switched it to a 777 when they leased a few aircraft. I don't remember from what airline. And they were doing well. I remember seeing those come up on Flight Radar years back, and then they stopped. Now, there was an interesting part about it was when they reopened the route, and I don't know if it actually ever started. I looked online, and I couldn't, even on uh, Simple Flying, I didn't see anything. But I did remember seeing an article um, on One Mile at a Time. So this is the interesting... Um, part about this and so now we've been transitioning from 777 767s and going back and forth back and forth and you know that's what we're normally used to but this was back in September 22nd of 2020 this is when it was published this article and it says the Ukrainian International Airlines are will start flying 737s to New York this is a 12 plus hour flight and the question bears in mind for transatlantic flights, is this the worst flight to fly? Well, if you think about it, 12 hours in a 737 is a lot of time. It's not so much that it's a lot of time, but you have to make a fuel stop, of course. There's, unless you're flying the Boeing business jet, you have to make a fuel stop. But the curious part about this was you would leave Kiev 
and you would fly and you would stop make a stopover in Reykjavik. I think it was Reykjavik. It was definitely in Iceland. And you would do, I think it was a one-hour fuel stop. And then after that, you would proceed on to your destination in um, New York, in JFK. <laughs> the interesting part about it was that this was an option for Ukrainians and for other tourists to either leave the country or come into the country at a lower cost. And what happens when you have lower cost? Less amenities. Now, mind you, think about a 12-hour long-haul flight, transatlantic, on a 737. Now, they also said, they mentioned in the article, there was none, no entertainment system. Like, there was no onboard entertainment systems. Uh, there was no charging outlets. And it was just kind of like the bare minimum bones. So if, you're, if your phone's running out of battery, you might as well just take a nap for the rest of the flight. That might be good for some, but it's just, I couldn't imagine sitting on a 737 for 12 plus hours just to get to New York City and sit in traffic for another 12 plus hours. What? That's neither here nor there. That was just another primary example, and I just couldn't imagine just doing that. It's just the idea of it. I think the westbound flight um, was blocked at 12 hours and 35 minutes. Um, that's 5 hours and 15 minutes from Kiev to um, Iceland and 6 hours and 20 minutes from Iceland to New York. Now, the eastbound flight, of course, a little bit shorter. Uh, was blocked around 11 hours and 20 minutes, and then that's 5 hours and 30 minutes from New York to Reykjavik and four hours and 15 minutes from uh, Reykjavik to Kiev. Um, at least for Kiev, is more or less on the way for this journey and it only adds around 40 miles. So, okay, 40 miles. Well, anyways, this is quite a product downgrade as you can kind of hear. This isn't your standard 767 or 777. Um, you know, we look at <laughs> what are the amenities that are flying and I just, uh, I guess I said, 12 hours sitting next to somebody. And if you have the middle seat, it's just forget about it. I mean, oh, it's just unbelievable. Well, we'll move, we'll move on from that. It's just an interesting um, article, and it's also an interesting story as well. That was one mile at a time. They did a story about this. So the idea of transatlantic narrow body flights is great i think it's a great idea it gives other people some options i think JetBlue's doing a great job play airlines are doing they're doing a great job i think it's one of the best jobs from player airlines because their routes are so you know cheap and you can get to europe for such a smaller price than if you said you flew on british airways or one of the other larger carriers but the moving forward, I, I, I like the idea. I think it's great, and I think that they'll continue to grow. I don't know how many more transatlantic flights we'll actually see. But overall, you know, it's a, the idea in my mind is a great idea. As we move on to the next topic of this podcast, we'll talk about what kind of camera should I buy. And I get this asked a lot. What camera do I need to buy to start plane spotting? And the answer is simple. You can just pick up your phone and snap a picture. But if you're interested in investing some money and putting it into a decent camera or say some good gear of that sort, there's a variety of cameras you can buy. It's not hard to find them. You can go to your local photo and video store. You can go to Best Buy, wouldn't recommend it, but you you can find your, the cameras that you want. So in reality, what 
the question is, what are you looking for in a camera? Are you mostly looking to do just plain spotting or are you thinking about maybe branching out and doing portraits or maybe landscape work or weddings or some kind of other event? Nevertheless, their real question is, how much are you willing to spend? Currently, cameras are everywhere. The brands are endless, and some of the major brands, of course, are Nikon, Sony, Canon, and there's some other brands as well, like Olympus, that provide pretty much the same thing. And all these cameras have their advantages and their disadvantages. So let's just say, for example, you say, I want to buy a Nikon camera. And Nikon's been in the game for a long time and they know what they're doing. I'm not saying that they're the best. I'm not saying that they're the worst. I will tell you that Sony is the best and that Canon is the worst. And that is also a joke. <laughs> the I just have this weird thing about Canon cameras. I'm not too sure what it is. They are great cameras. Um, I'm not knocking Canon at all. But they have great um, products for you. But when you say, for example, we'll just use the Nikon variety know that you have the camera selected or the brand the tricky part for most you know people starting in this hobby is which model do I buy now there's a thousand different numbers and different varieties so it kind of gets a little confusing but you do get a Nikon D3500 which is a great starting camera for uh, someone just getting into this you can buy that with the kit lenses and it's perfectly fine and you can get what you um, the pictures that you want to achieve um, or you can go up a little bit there's the 7500 or do you want to get the 750 or the 850 or do you even want to go further and throw in all your pennies and get the Z6 series or the possible Z7 series when they release more models so the possibilities, honestly, are endless. You can spend forever just looking at different options. But the better question, again, to ask yourself here is, what am I willing to spend on this camera? So remember, there's two parts that are the main components of a camera. You have the camera body, of course, and you have the lens. So when you buy, say, a kit lens from Best Buy, what I recommend it again, sorry, Best Buy, uh, you get the body and the lens, they most, almost 99% of the time are not attached. You have to attach the lens yourself. So there's two different main components. And of course, some people have asked me, what do I get? Do I upgrade my camera body first or do I upgrade the lens? So the camera body is sometimes sold with no lens at all. So make sure you consider purchasing a lens. So put that into your budget as well when telling yourself, this is how much I want to spend. If you say I have $2,500 to spend on a camera, remember that $2,500 might just buy you the body, not the lens. So you can take absolutely no pictures after you buy the body and then wait maybe three or four paychecks and then buy a lens. But remember that these Cameras, especially the higher-end cameras, a lot, a lot of the times are sold just with the body. You can buy them. They have kit lenses. I think most cameras do, um, at least like I said, the higher-end cameras. But remember to look for both, you know, a kit lens, you know, uh, excuse me, a camera with a kit lens kit, or I said that completely wrong, and then also for the body as well. So moving on, you know, once you've figured out how much you're willing to spend, you have to once again ask yourself how much you know what brand you going with 
this is say for example Nikon or Sony or Canon, and then you figure out what kind of like subgenre or that you want to go with as well. So do a 3500, a 7500, a 750, 850, and so on. So this is just my opinion because I been I get that this question asked a lot again. Like I said, you know, do I upgrade my camera body first or my lens? So a good camera body, and this is just my opinion, drives the entire concept of taking good photos. Now I will stop and say, a lot of it is all dependent on the person taking the photo. I know people that have bought very expensive cameras and they still shoot right into the sun and I just don't understand. So their photos come out and I go look at them and I say, what are you doing? Get a refund, buy a model train set and just do that. I don't know what to tell you. So it's not always about the camera. It's also about the person taking the camera. For example, if there's a someone new that's young and they want a, want to buy a camera, they want their parents to buy them a camera, and I've had you know kind of parents ask me, oh, what you know what camera should I buy? I would tell them you know get a Nikon D3500. You know you can get it for like a thousand bucks or less now I think, and they'll have a great time with it, and they won't know anything you know different at all about it. They're just excited to have a camera. But at the same time, I wouldn't go and tell them, go buy a Z6 series unless, you know, they drive a Rolls Royce and money is no object. But I wouldn't tell them to go buy a high-end camera because the higher you go up in the levels of cameras, the more it takes to understand the camera, to read through all the manuals, to know your camera's limitations and know your camera's strengths. And you have to play with that as best you can. But once again, this is just my opinion on it but you can instead of investing in say like a, a large lens which is going to cost you around fifteen hundred dollars and you can you can buy that you can so for example if you have a nikon d we'll say nikon d3500 and you buy a fifteen or twelve hundred dollar lens say sigma or tamron or even nikon and you want to get that extra reach you want the 150 to 600 millimeter you can take that lens and put it on that Nikon D3500, but you're still gonna get the same megapixels as if you had the kit lens. So, like I said, if you can you can slap it on a D3500, but at the same time, you'll still get the same megapixels. But you may also see the same results, you know, you have always seen that the photos you've taken before, the photos you've taken after, after buying the lens. But if we move up into a more in-depth camera, we're getting better processing power, we're getting faster sensors, and a better overall experience. So for example, there's a lot of you know, advantages and disadvantages for a, say, older camera system to a newer camera system. But if you buy a camera that gets 18 megapixels and you put a fancy lens on it, you're still gonna get 18 megapixels. There's nothing changing it. You can extend that 18 megapixels and get good reach on it, and that's great, but your photos are still gonna be the same as if they were with the kit lens. But if you get a camera with 24 megapixels on it, you will 100% for sure notice the difference. There's gonna be a huge difference. When I went from um, DSLR to mirrorless, I saw a vast improvement on my photos, the sharpness of the photos, and so on.
So the couple, there's a couple differences for the people that are like listening in and want to know, you know, do I get a DSLR or do I get a mirrorless camera? The DSLR offers a wide selection of interchangeable lenses. That for sure has to be one of the advantages. They also have longer battery life because you don't have, you have an optical viewfinder versus say a digital viewfinder. And then on the other hand, mirrorless cameras are lighter. Uh, they're definitely more portable and they offer better video quality if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, we're talking more of photos, but some, you know, a lot of people take videos of aircraft as well. I usually do them on my phone because I just don't like taking videos on my camera. Um, even some of the uh, lower end models can shoot more images at faster shutter speeds. You have, you know, higher uh, frames per second in the mirrorless versus the DSLRs. And everything overall is just a little bit more enhanced. So the idea of buying your first camera or looking maybe to even upgrade your camera, you have to ask yourself, like I said, price point, what are you looking to spend? And just remember, and this is solely my opinion, if you're going to upgrade anything or if you're going to buy something, I would always upgrade the body. I wouldn't even get rid of the old body. I would just upgrade, buy a new body, and now you have two cameras just in case one goes out on you, you still have something to fall back on. But slapping a big fancy lens on a Nikon D3500 or a Canon T8 and stuff like that, you're still gonna get the same picture quality. Now I could be wrong, and someone can call me out on it, and I have no problem with that, but the idea of it is just to get the upgrade. Get Upgrade your body, don't worry about the lens, and over time you can buy another lens or you can buy them at the same time and you'll see the difference and then of course know your camera know its limitations and its advantages know what you can do with it know what you can't do with it and understand the camera fully know all the modes don't shoot an automatic because if you do that you might as well just get one of those polaroid cameras you can do that too maybe that's a cool thing i'm not sure but just you know work through the modes um, aperture mode, shutter priority, and so on and so forth. You can do full manual too, but that takes a lot of practice. As we move on to... So to summarize all this, the best way to say it is find the camera that best fits you and find the camera that you feel the most comfortable with. If you're not comfortable with it, then don't buy it. It's like buying shoes. You know, you put on shoes, they might look really good and flashy, but at the same time, if they don't fit just right, you're not going to be comfortable with them. So take these tips into consideration, think about what I've talked about, and you can use that for your next purchase or your upgrade. Now we move on to one of my favorite parts of the podcast, a story, not a story, more of like a reliving of a past spot, spotting trip that I had. Um, in the previous week, I mentioned a few times about one of my trips to Florida and how much I really just enjoyed spotting down there. So this week I want to transition a little bit to a trip that I did to Chicago just recently and Wisconsin. I did Chicago and Wisconsin and the same trip. I decided uh, I wanted to at least hit one airport. I made a list of airports that I had in the beginning of the year that I wanted to go and spot at and Chicago was definitely on one of them. It was actually one of my top airports. And so I packed my bags, booked my flight. Yes, I did it in that order. Don't ask me why. And I headed out to the Midwest. Is that a question mark? Because I think Chicago is the Midwest. Someone can let me know about that. 
So I flew Southwest, and which, as you've heard from the beginning of the show, is not one of my favorite airlines to fly. And once I arrived in Chicago, the first surprise came to me in the form of my rental car. And we talked about a little bit about this in the last podcast about planning and you know making sure everything's just right. Now, sometimes things aren't always just the way you planned. So when I got there, uh, I selected a fuel-efficient car that I wanted because I knew I was going to do a lot of driving. And I was left with the option of a truck that was four-wheel drive and a bear on the fuel. Sounds good. You know, at first, it was really nice looking, you know, until you realize, you know, most of the driving that you do, and it's going to cost you pretty much an arm and a leg just to fuel the the truck. Um, Either way, I was on my way to Chicago for the first time, and I was given a great guide by a local spotter there, um, what places to go, spots to stay away from, and so on. And after trying to check into my hotel early, which didn't work out because, you know, it was just too early in the morning, I was off to my first spotting location. And I will say this, spotting in the summer at Chicago is not fun, at least not for me. I mean, sure, the amount of aircraft arriving and departing from the airport was great, but the spotting locations alone weren't ideal. Now, maybe that's just because it was my first time spotting there. But at the same time, I did a lot of reading, and I thought maybe this was going to be good, and it just didn't pan out the way I was hoping for. So after a few hours at each location and a couple sunburns later, I was getting to the point of high noon, and I needed something to do. Still couldn't check in my hotel, so I decided to go to the zoo. Brought my camera with me, got some amazing photos of some, um, I almost said planes, but actually animals. And uh, I spent some time there for the most part kind of killing the high noon time i just don't like doing the whole toplet taking photos of aircraft it's just not for me um so we moving on forward after a few hours at the zoo and grab some lunch and i will say the lunch was very expensive at the zoo but that's to be considered uh, i was went back to the hotel room for a little bit of like a recharge moment i uh, looked at some photos and then i don't remember if i took a nap or not it was one of those you know, days. I was pretty tired. I think it was an early flight that morning out of Manchester. It was like 5 a.m. or maybe 6 a.m. It was very, very early. And then uh, I pretty much regrouped myself and went off for some evening spotting. And I was, once again, left with some difficulties. Uh, Not so much the lighting, even though it was kind of like a funky lighting. I saved some of those. I haven't posted all of them from this one location, but I like to call these photos that I got the Wacky Lighting Wednesday post. It's just, it, it's just the way it works. The runways in Chicago run east to west, and of course the sun kind of just follows that line, and it just gives you these little kind of like funky kind of shot when you do get them. Uh, but it wasn't so much the lighting that bothered me as I finally found a spot where I could shoot from and I set up shop, I had the truck, so I was able to stand in the bed of the truck and I was taking shots, got CRJ, Air Canada, a couple other cool, you know, liveries that came in. And then here comes the pesky security guard, who I found out later doesn't even work for the airport. He just, I don't even know who he was, honestly. He had a security car, he had a, you know, a uniform on and a badge. But he wasn't a police officer, or even airport security. But he was like, hey, you're not supposed to be doing this, blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, I'm from out of town. And then he started talking to me about, oh, I do remember this. This was the strange thing. 
he, he goes, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, I live in New England, in New Hampshire. And he's just like, oh, yeah, you guys still use oil lamps up there or something crazy. And I go, it's 2022, man. I said, what are you thinking? I said, I guess you don't get out of Chicago much, but we do have electricity and we do have roads and running water for that matter. But it was just like a weird encounter. He was, he let me go. And I think at that point, I just, you know, wanted to call it quits and I got back in the truck and I was like, you know, it's the time for dinner. And um, I looked for a nice place to eat and being in Chicago and me being Polish, I could not pass up a good Polish restaurant. I found one. It was probably the second best Polish restaurant I've ever eaten at. The first one, of course, is in Boston, South Boston. If you guys are ever in Boston, make sure you head down to uh, South Boston. It's off of Dorchester Street or Dorchester, something like that. Uh, Cafe Polonia is one of the best, probably, Polish restaurants in the country, in my general opinion. Uh, so I grabbed uh, dinner at this Polish restaurant in Chicago, and I headed back to the hotel. I think I got some uh, food to go as well, because it was so good. And I rested up for the next day. I looked at more photos, got an early night's sleep. And then the following morning, I kicked it off with you know my breakfast, and I jumped on the road for Wisconsin. The idea of it was the first stop was going to be the EA, EAA Museum. It's um, right out it's in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And this was kind of like where the efficient planning takes into effect. So I noticed the drive was going to be a few hours, and I wanted to make sure that I got to the airports that I wanted to. But the timing was, okay, a few-hour drive. It's going to be around 11 when I get there. So what better way to spend the high noon part of the day, not taking pictures outside, but taking pictures inside. So this museum provided a lot of cool aircraft to see inside the museum and outside, but mostly inside. And I had some great time filling up my phone full of pictures. I thought reading through the history was great. Uh, I stopped for lunch um, and I was talking with a few spotters in the area. One of them, which worked at the Oshkosh Air, uh, airport and they were actually just getting ready for their EAA AirVenture uh, time and that's a huge you know fly-in for a lot of the general aviation aircraft but I talked with this uh, gentleman for a while who actually um, works you know, said at the airport but he works for a company and he you know invited me to take a tour of their hangar uh, see the kind of aircraft that they use and I thought it was a great experience and I the friendliness of people in Wisconsin was just like superb like it was outstanding when I was in Chicago I had a kind of a couple run-ins with some spotters and like I said not knocking Chicago but I was asking them you know where's you know where's a good place to spot can I get over here can I get over there and they kind of just brushed me off a little bit which is fine I mean not everyone likes outsiders and I understand that but it was just kind of like one of those interesting you know, meetups with certain people. But this gentleman in um, Oshkosh, you know, it was very nice. And we sat and talked for oh, so long about just everything aviation related. And right before I left, I went to a, there's a company out there called uh, Basel Turbo Conversions. And what they do is they have these old DC-9 sitting out there and it looks kind of like an elephant graveyard. But what they do is they restore these DC-9s and they put turbo props on them and these, Companies that buy them use them for they use them for surveying and they use them for all different types of you know work things that they have. But it was really cool, and I thought to myself, man, what if I just went in there and just asked them for a tour? And 
lo and behold, I walk right through the front door, I meet the first guy I see, and I say, hey, you know, this is what I do, and I'd love to, you know, if it's possible, to get, like, a ramp tour and see what there is to see. And he's just like, absolutely, and kind of showed me around, and it was really, really great. The lighting wasn't the best, but I got a couple photos that I thought really stood out, but they were really, really awesome there. And so the museum was great, you know, Oshkosh was great. And then after a while, I was just like, you know, it's time to head back. I want to make sure I meet up with some spotters in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so I started driving back down um, there. So when I got to Milwaukee, I will have to say, the out of this whole trip, my favorite time ever was spotting in Milwaukee. I did some golden hour spotting with a few spotters. I met some great guys there. Once again, Wisconsin, amazing spotters they have out there, extremely friendly, uh, really open to helping you out, talking with you. It's just an awesome time, and I, I will 100% be back to Milwaukee to do some more spotting because I did spotting from the garage, and it was really, really awesome, and I can't wait to get back there and do it again. Those guys, like I said, out there are awesome. Um, so my whole trip alone was... Good. We had mixed reviews with Chicago, and we had really good reviews, and so on and so forth with Milwaukee and also Oshkosh. But at the end of it, it was finally time to go home. I uh, headed back to Chicago, and you know, pretty much just enjoyed the rest of my night. Uh, had to get to bed early because I had an early flight out. Now I stayed at a hotel near uh, O'Hare, but I flew into Midway. And I was going to do some spotting at Midway, and I just happened to so see something on the news the day before about some you know, activity that was going right out on right outside the airport. And I said, ah, you know, maybe it's not the greatest idea to do. But nevertheless, I got some shots that I wanted to get. Uh, the overall trip was a good one, and you know, I hopped back on my Southwest flight, which was yet again interesting and headed back to Manchester and I'm like I said looking forward to uh, another spotting trip I got one planned in November to Florida and I think that's pretty much it for the rest of the year I'm hoping the weather holds pretty well just right at the end of hurricane season there and if you are guys and living in Florida listening to this podcast I really hope you're staying safe make sure you you know take all the precautions you need uh, for this hurricane that's coming through I grew up in South Florida so I know um, West Coast, you guys are going to be hit pretty hard, so just be safe and, you know, do what you have to do to stay, you know, out of the path of it as best you can. And at the end of the day, you all, we all know, especially growing up in Florida, that, you know, there is sunlight at the end of the hurricane, and it's just, a, once again, a rebuilding process. I've been through just enough of them to know exactly what you guys are going through. But so stay safe out there, guys. And uh, that was the spotting story for my last trip to Chicago. I hope you found it enjoyable, maybe a little humorous. And if it was just boring, you know, you can always just fast forward right through. But just one of my experiences. And I appreciate you guys listening. And I think next week we'll do, maybe we'll do a story. Maybe we won't. It's really kind of up to you guys. Love your feedback, what you give me. So we'll just go from there. And now we move on to one of my favorite parts of the podcast and the last part of the podcast is the question and answers. So I always throw up on my Instagram Q&A for the podcast, and I always get a wide variety of questions from, you know, hey, that's a question, but it wasn't really a question. Somebody just put hey. And then some, you know, other interesting questions as well. But nevertheless, let's just jump into it. We've got some, I just picked four right off the top of the bat. 
But the, uh, the first one is from the traveling photographer. He asks, um, how do you get your shots non-pixelated? This one, I'm assuming you mean an Instagram. So Instagram's a weird platform, and a lot of people can you know vouch for that one. But pixelation, I think it's more so, it's just how you export your photos from wherever you're editing. Me personally, I take the photos, I put them into Lightroom, I edit in Lightroom, and then I transfer them over to Photoshop, and then I export a certain way. So I don't export as, I, what I do is I export uh, for web legacy. It's an option there. It's, it's, this could be like a whole different podcast, more of like a, probably a good video, throw it on my YouTube. But it's more so for um, how to, you don't get as much compression um, when you export save for web legacy versus exporting just a regular file because Instagram will compress your photos. So if you want to get the most bang for your buck out of it and most eye-catching photos, there's a process about it. I'll make a YouTube video about it down the road to kind of show people. That's a big question that I get from a lot. The next uh, question comes from pen.aviation and asks, how long am I in a heli for when I do my aerial photo shoots? Is it an all-day thing? So no, it's not an all-day thing because I am not made of money. It's very expensive. It can be very time-consuming. And the tower, obviously, and sometimes doesn't want you up there just the whole time. So for me, when I go up uh, for my aerial photography sessions, I'm doing at least a minimum of two hours. I think the two-hour minimum mark is good. Sometimes I go over just slightly, but I think uh, two hours is spot on for me. I get a little tired after two hours. I'm a tall guy and sitting in a Robinson 44 for two hours uh, sweating or freezing, either one. Um, it can be a little taxing on the body. And I will say once I do get out of the helicopter, a lot of stretching is involved. Um, but yeah, two hour mark is good. That's what I normally go up for. And I just wouldn't do anything other than that or more than that. Just It's just a little too too much on the body. And after a while too, if you think about it, if your body's getting tired, your concentration's getting you know, a little bit less. And I'm sure you guys, when you've been spotting on the ground too, if you spotted for say at Logan or a major airport and there's a lot of action, there's not always, uh, you have this you know, eye strain, you have to provide some eye relief for yourself so you can focus on your shots. So it's the same with the, uh, the heli spotting. All right, so probably uh, my favorite question, we're actually gonna save this favorite question for last. We'll just jump to another one, but it's a uh, user is, uh, it's a seagull. That's literally the user's name, and I think it's probably one of the best user names uh, that I saw. Uh, asks for tips on crisp photos. So once again, I'll kind of just really quickly go over my settings that I use. I shoot in aperture mode 99% of the time. Aperture mode allows the shutter to be automatic where you're just controlling the ISO and also the focal length. Um, so it's aperture mode, uh, my f-stops usually around f8, f9, right in that sweet spot for me. My ISO, depending on the weather, now it all depends, it, my is usually around 100 to 200. Now I wouldn't recommend aperture mode for um, kind of an overcast kind of day. I wouldn't recommend taking photos in an overcast kind of day, that's just my opinion. But uh, aperture mode is good for sunny days. You know, your shutter speed is going to be, like I said, recorded automatically. You don't have to change it. And all you have to do is worry about your f-stop. So 
those are just that's a really quick kind of like settings um, that I use that I I get my crisp photos with. Um, there'd be a couple other people I'm sure that can answer the same question. And now, last but not least, my favorite question of all, coming from MHT Planes himself, a very large account on Instagram. Go check out MHT Planes if you don't already. Go follow him. He's a good friend of mine, and we do a lot of spotting together. His question is, do I prefer, this is myself personally, military or commercial spotting? Now, do I like to take pictures of military aircraft or commercial spotting? And this question comes up in group chats a lot, and boy, does it get some heat riled through it. My personal opinion, I love commercial spotting. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Logan any day of the week. Military, not so much. I It's kind of one of those things, and I'm probably going to be a touchy subject for some, but... It's like you go, you don't, okay, so commercial aircraft, you know when they're coming in and you know when they're going out and they're probably going to be late or probably early, but you get a general sense that they're coming in and you'll get a chance to see something. Military is more of a hurry up and wait. And me, I was in the military, so I, I know what hurry up and wait means, but it's kind of like you can go out to say an airport. I will not name the airport, um, but you can go out to an airport near me and you can sit four hours and see nothing, absolutely nothing, and you just spent four hours of your day not seeing any military aircraft whatsoever. Or you can just go to your local airport or Boston or a larger airport and you can get as much action as you want so you always guarantee those shots. So me personally, I'm not really a fan of military aviation. I like to call them gray planes. They all look the same to me. Now you can say the same thing about United or Southwest or Delta and so on and so forth. And that's a completely fair point. But I think the <laughs> the idea of it is more so, you know, do we, <laughs> do we want a lot of action or do we want to kind of cross our fingers and hope we see something? Now you could live near a busy military airbase and get a ton of stuff all the time and that's great i mean maybe i'd be more into it if i had a ton of action every single day but we really don't up here and it's kind of sometimes it's disheartening i've driven out to the east coast of new hampshire once again not saying the airport you know who you are uh and i've seen absolutely nothing or i've gone to see something and it's late and you can't really see it on flight radar you have to look at adsb and in all reality, it's just not my cup of tea. If I see something and snap a picture and grab something cool, that's awesome. But I'm not rushing out there to see eh, pretty much whatever's coming in. I don't like taking that risk. But that's just me. Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, MHC Plans, thanks for the question. I know this is going to spur up some con controversy in the group chats. Uh, I apologize ahead of time. But that's just that. That's me. I don't think... Military planes are less cool than commercial aircraft. I just, me personally, I like commercial aviation spotting. I think it's a lot more fun, in my humble opinion. And once again, this wraps up just yet another episode of Skies and Beyond Radio. I thank you guys for listening. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, feel free to shoot me a message over on Instagram. That's Skies and Beyond on Instagram. My website, which is www.skiesandbeyond.com, or even on my Twitter, which is, yet again, Skies and Beyond. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.